Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. This is Jack Hodgson, and I'm here with my two good friends, Dave Higdon and Jeb Burnside. Hi, guys. How you doing? We're doing well. Um, could be a better day, but we're doing well. We're recording this episode on the afternoon of August 22nd, 2013. Uh, we scheduled the recording of this episode on this day because this is our seventh birthday. Uh, seven years ago today, we recorded the very first episode of this podcast. We had planned to spend the next 60 minutes or so uh, reviewing the past year in aviation and reminiscing about the early days of the podcast, but that plan has been overshadowed by some very sad news. As most of you have probably heard by now, Paul Poborezny, uh, one of the most beloved figures in general aviation and the founder of EAA and the Oshkosh Fly-In, uh, died this morning at age 91. We'll be back in a few days with a birthday episode of this podcast, but today we'd like to spend a few minutes remembering this special man. And if it's okay with you guys, um, I'd like to say a few words about Paul's life, and sure. then maybe we can share a few personal stories about him. Go ahead. I spent this afternoon reading about Paul's life uh, in his EAA official bio, in his Wikipedia page, and from many reminiscences on Twitter and on the Internet. Some of these things I knew, but others were new to me. Paul was born on September 14, 1921, in Kansas. His parents were Peter and Jetty Poborezny. He discovered his love for airplanes at a very young age. As a, as a small boy, he built and flew model airplanes, lots of them. Later, with the help and encouragement of a high school teacher, he restored and then flew a Waco primary glider. It's said that between the ages of 16 and 17, he flew that glider over 2,000 times. At the age of 17, he soloed his first powered aircraft, a 1935 Porterfield. Paul's father also encouraged his son's love for aviation. He used $250 of the family's savings, a very large sum of money at the time, to buy Paul his first airplane, the 1928 American Eagle. Paul entered the military and served our country in a career that lasted almost 30 years. He was a pilot, test pilot, and combat veteran. He retired from active duty in 1970 with the rank of lieutenant colonel, and from then on he was able to devote his full-time energies to EAA. Fourteen years earlier, back in 1953, with his wife Audrey and a small group of friends, he formed EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association. They held the first annual fly-in later that same year. The fly-in, that we now call Air Venture, was first held in Milwaukee, and it soon moved to Rockford, Illinois, and in 1970 it moved to its current home at Whitman Field in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Each summer, literally hundreds of thousands of airplane enthusiasts gather in Oshkosh to celebrate aviation. This organization that was created to support home builders never forgot its roots. It continues to have a passionate division devoted to designing and fabricating amateur-built airplanes. But over the years, it attracted people from all areas of aviation, home builders, vintage, hang gliding, ultralights, rotor wing, aerobatics, soaring, lighter than air, and now light sport. No matter what part of flying you're drawn to, you can find those planes, that kind of flying, and those people through EAA. During his life, Paul flew nearly 500 different types of aircraft, including more than 170 home builds. Uh, in addition to flying and building airplanes, he also designed them, with 50 models credited to his name. On the surface, EAA seems to be an organization about airplanes, but really that's the least of it. 
Paul liked to say that he was a millionaire because he made a million friends. And most of us will agree that that is how Paul and his EAA has enriched us all. The friends, new and old, that we meet each summer in Wisconsin are the real treasure of EAA and maybe Paul's greatest legacy. So thank you, Paul, for making this your life's work, for sharing your passion with us, and for creating this place where we can all gather together in Oshkosh and at each of our home fields and share the joy of flight. Dave, Jeb, anything you'd like to add? He was kind of a puzzle to me when we first met. Uh, Gosh, I guess it was 1981, and I was fresh on at Glider Rider magazine. And... uh, yeah, there were there there were some points of friction between my com- little community of hang glider and ultralight pilots and some of the larger aviation community, and uh, Paul kind of took the role of of trying to mentor you know these young hippie hang glider pilots and ultralight pilots that uh, <laughs> really didn't have a lot of regard for establishment or established rules and procedures we were just used to going out somewhere where it was open and flying and uh he he tried to kind of bridge the gap there and enlighten us a little bit and at the same time stand up to people who asserted that if we weren't licensed and and certificated at the same way that everything else was that we shouldn't be allowed to fly anything at all End of story. Uh, should be banned from the airports, uh, not allowed in the airspace. Uh, some of them went so far as to say, oh, they, you know, they should empower the sheriffs to lock them up if they get caught flying these things. It was a little insane. And Paul kind of took the side that it wasn't their airspace. It wasn't his airspace. It wasn't our airspace. It was everybody's airspace. And it was accessible to anybody that could figure out a way to get into the air. And in the same spirit of the guys like him who founded the home building movement, he looked at us as an extension of uh, of aviation. We were simply reinventing the vehicle. We weren't inventing anything new. We were reinventing the vehicle. Uh, new technology, new materials uh, that hadn't come into play before. Uh, the Regalo wing design, uh, John Moody putting a McCullough 101 chainsaw engine on the back of a, 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 a machine like an Easy Riser and flying it in front of the crowds at Oshkosh uh, in, in the 1970s. Uh, he uh, went out of his way to make newcomers feel like they were part of the community uh he reached out had a uh had a pretty wicked sense of humor at times and oh i'd advise if he was still around stay away from the smoke oil (laughs) (laughs) jeb how about you did you did you meet him or know him i I have i met him a couple of times i i i'm sure he would not remember my me my face my name anything like that um met him I guess on the grounds at Oshkosh on occasion, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, in, in D.C. And that's really kind of where you know my memories of, of um, Paul Bobaresny or Stem. Back in the '80s, when I was at NBAA, uh, there were basically four big 
GA trade association. There was AOPA, there was Gamma, there was EAA, and there was NBAA. And um, those four were were run by uh, some some interesting men. John Winant, whom whom we've talked about before uh, on the podcast, um, Ed Stimson, uh, John Baker, of course, and uh, Paul Pobresny were kind of the the, the four horsemen, uh, <laughs> in, in a sense. They were old school, um, uh, individually and uh, collectively. They uh, had very strong ideas about um, general aviation and, and what it was and where it could go. Um, they had very strong ideas about how to run organizations. And uh, that they all did it well and that they all saw the industry through some very, very interesting times, uh, I think speaks for itself. So I, I, I look at, at, at his legacy from that standpoint and that background first and it wasn't until the 90s that I started going to Oshkosh and started to get to know the other side of, of EAA and uh, the more I saw the more you know I, I fell in love with the organization the more um, I worked with and, and uh, among uh, EAA people EAA staff <clears throat> EAA volunteers um, the more I felt that this was kind of a top-down organization, at least as far as enthusiasm and dedication were concerned. And uh, that's the legacy, I think, uh, one of the legacies, by no means the only legacy, that Paul Pobresny leaves. Um, in addition to being one of those, those uh, four horsemen of general aviation um, back in the day, uh, he's, he really infused that, that organization that we now know as EAA and we now know as AirVenture and, and uh, um, I should say the event we now know as AirVenture um, with that, that same dedication, with that same enthusiasm. But um, the optimism, the, 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 the down-home, family-oriented organization um, uh, that uh, often is EAA, uh, could not exist without him. We would not have air, had air venture without him. There is so much um, that uh, would have passed us by. Yeah, and uh, you know you got to take your hat off and you got to sit back and say, well, you know, when I, you know, take my last flight, as it were, when I head west, uh, I hope that I've done at least some of what he's done. Yeah, yeah. I, I never knew Paul personally, for sure. Um, I uh, I don't think I ever had a personal conversation with him. Um, I, I was, I, I don't mean this, I was in, in his presence uh, maybe a half a dozen, eight or nine times, um, usually because uh, I, I was attending some, some talk that he was given. I remember one time uh, when I was very active in the chapters, um, there was a, a meeting during AirVenture, during Oshkosh, of uh, chapter volunteers over in the Nature Center. And uh, he was the featured speaker, and we were all just terribly excited that we were going to meet Paul. And uh, and he came up, and he was just a presence in that room. I'll tell you, I mean, and that's not a small space there. He he just kind of stepped up on the uh, on the riser at the podium and just took charge, and it was it was something to remember. Um, but most of my my interactions, I I have two kinds of interactions with Paul that I that I remember the most. Um, 
one is just seeing them around the grounds. It was it was almost a you know it was like one of the, one of, I don't know one of the air venture bingo things that you'd look for every year. You know there were certain things you had to do every year, and one of them was hope to get us to to see Paul. Usually he'd be driving by in uh, in his uh, kind of iconic uh, uh, red uh, Volkswagen Beetle. Um, the uh, Red One is what it was called. Um, I believe named after his his uh, his uh, military fighter plane. I'm not sure about that. Do either of you know, David? You're the one that seems like you might know that. Was Red well, One I'm, also the name of his person of his of his of his military no, plane? I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. it might have been named Audrey, but. But I'd so I'd see Paul, you know, every year. I'd hope, hopefully, every year, see him driving around. Usually, he'd be in his vehicle, and, but. Although sometimes he would drive by, a lot of times you'd see him just stopped somewhere chatting with someone, and he'd be kind of twisted sideways in in those Volkswagens that had the doors removed, and mm-hmm. he'd be chatting with, and usually not chatting with one person because usually a crowd of people would gather, and there'd be a number of people there saying hi to him and smiling and and it uh, was, you know catching it, it up. It amazed me. It, it amazed me the early years that uh, I attended Oshkosh. To see a guy that at the time I thought was, you know, getting to be an old fellow, uh, tearing around the grounds in red one, uh, walkie-talkie in a holster on his hip with the the extension microphone speaker up there clipped to his collar, uh, shades cap, uh, running the event and cutting ribbons and shaking hands and signing as showing up to do a 15-minute introduction and just all over the place. Dawn to dusk, yeah. beyond dusk to the late night events, introducing people at the theater in the woods. How in the hell does anybody keep that kind of pace? I don't know. I don't know. But, you uh, know I learned after a while. Uh huh. It's passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, it runs on passion. That that sort of leads into the other kind of memory I have of of Paul. Which is a secondhand memory. Um, as many people know, my beat, or at least one of my beats at uh, at Air Venture, is uh, the around the field column, and I wander around and just chat with lots of regular people in the campgrounds and on the flight line, and and it's you know it's I've kind of gotten used to it. it. At first, it surprised me, and then it stopped surprising me, but it never stopped that the number of people who would have a story about Paul, that, mm-hmm. that they had encountered him somehow, some way, usually multiple times over the years. And it was always a very, very regular guy kind of story. All right, it, it was that he was out with the volunteers helping pick up the trash at the end of the week, or he was you know, setting up buildings or talking with volunteers or, or, or you know, some sort of very regular person kind of thing um, as, the, uh, as the fly-in you know, was being put on. In a given year, lots of stories like that. Everybody had them, and everybody was proud of them. They were very, very proud to tell me this, the time they interacted with Paul. To share the credit too, the guys that helped found EAA with Paul and Audrey were the same way, and a lot of them had very successful careers in other areas, uh, and kind of worked their way into full time activity with EAA as they moved into retirement, like Paul did. And this wasn't remote controlled stuff. You know, this wasn't a board of directors or uh, association executives walled off from the masses by two or three layers of intermediaries. This was a guy out there in red one or blue one or whatever, picking up trash, shaking hands, cutting ribbons, getting his ear bent by those million friends. Yeah, yeah. Um 
one of the things that's appearing this afternoon since the news has come out, uh, the Internet, uh, Twitter, the Facebook, etc., are, are just full of people checking in and, and, and giving their condolences and, and relating their, their stories. One of the things that's popping up everywhere is pictures that, uh, that people had taken of themselves with Paul, yeah, particularly yeah. this year, um, uh, that just some very, very sweet touching, almost heartbreaking pictures now, given the circumstances of uh, Paul wasn't able to drive Red One this year. He was being chauffeured around. Um, I, I've been told that he, although he had been uh, uh, you know, very, very frail and living in a nursing home, um, he made time every day to come to the grounds, at least for a little while. And uh, he was driven around in Red One, and he had a chance to visit with people, and many people had pictures of themselves taken with him. A lot of pictures with Paul with his kind of uh, tr- trademark thumbs up, you know, and uh, uh, just some very, very sweet uh, uh, pictures of Paul uh, this year. And uh, I- I've kind of grabbed one of those and put it on our homepage, and uh, there's just lots of them appearing um, on the Internet right now. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one, one thing that um, I, I'll always remember also about uh, Paul. Um, I had the great fortune to uh, be present at the uh, the dinner where he uh, was uh, named recipient of the uh, National Aeronautic Association's Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy. Uh, this was in 2002. Uh, the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy is awarded annually to a living American for, quote, significant public service of enduring value to aviation in the United States, unquote. And uh, I remember a great deal about the night, but one of the um, things that I remember is, is was his speech uh, and, and the, the video that, that um, um, was, was uh, shown before uh, his speech. It, just, it was just a great, um, thing it was it was clearly something that that he deserved. It was clearly something that uh, um, there were uh, that uh, he appreciated. Uh, it was clearly something that everyone in the room felt he he richly deserved. Um, one final note on that particular uh, um, that particular award. Again, uh, Paul H. Pobrezny was the recipient of that Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy in two thousand two. The people, well, in 2001, the same award was given to Neil Armstrong. In 2003, the award was given to John Glenn. So that's the, the caliber of the uh, <laughs> people yeah. uh, with which he hung and, and the caliber of, of uh, person that a lot of other people thought he was. Yeah. Well, it's, it's worth noting, I think, and, and this is pretty much the end of what I could say without getting more personal than I care to, uh, is that EAA and what Paul and Harry Zeisloft and all the other guys did that created the need for EAA to exist, that's where the whole thing started. Their, their push tug of war, if you will, with the federal aviation authorities of the time, CAA, to allow a craftsman to build an airplane and have it inspected and approved as constructed well enough for the fool that built it to fly it if he wanted to. Uh, you know, that that was a, a really small 
little group of people who were engaged in that kind of activity. Uh, and it was activity that it dated back to the Wright brothers. I mean, let's face it, general aviation, aviation was born out of home builders. Uh, and they didn't go away when factories started churning them out. Uh, some of the editions uh, of 1920s, 1930s, Popular Science and, and, and other such magazines with their plans to build gliders and little airplanes. Uh, the, the argument that went on between Paul and, and friends of his from all over the United States that were engaged in this activity paved the way for the home building movement that EAAs helped support all these years. Uh, that, to me, is their enduring contribution, that they helped secure a niche, a regulatory niche that allows people to build airplanes now at uh, in a way and at a rate that was undreamed of back in the late 40s and early 50s when this was in, in, in play. Uh, you know, when I first started working in this, there weren't 5,000 home built on the registry. Right. Now there are over 30,000. And the number grows by several hundred every year because of the success of companies like Vans and Rands uh, and several others in the uh, more ultralight end of it. Uh, some of the boutique makers uh, like Lance Air that still produces really high-performance kits. Uh, none of that would exist if these guys hadn't persisted and won that argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's thousands of people and thousands of airplanes and tens of thousands of pilots. God knows how many jobs and how much money. Uh, and the spawning of the EAA and the signature event in general aviation it all stems from them winning that argument. And, you know, it, it, it helped the rest of us along the line in, in the vintage area, in the Warbirds area, uh, in uh, what would we call it, classic GA airplanes and contemporary airplanes. Uh, it's just been a top-to-bottom influence that fortunately we'll never stop feeling. Yeah, I'm not sure how long we'll remember, but we'll never stop feeling it. Yeah. The the last time I saw Paul, and I'm not sure, it certainly wasn't this year. This may have been a memory from last summer or perhaps the summer before. Um, it was towards. It was at the end of the week. Um, EAA puts on a kind of wind down party for people who are volunteers and and staff uh, during the week. It's it's after everything is over on Sunday afternoon. It's over at the Nature Center, um, which is kind of an outdoor uh, uh, events area um, over beyond the parking lots uh, on the way to the museum. And uh, and there was just a lot of us, as there is every year. A lot of us were gathered there, and we were kind of socializing and winding down, and and rem- remembering the the week and and wishing it wasn't over, but kind of glad that it was. <laughs> and uh, um, and and I hadn't seen Paul all week long, and I was kind of aware of that, and uh, and, and was was feeling badly about that. And all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, Red One appeared. Um, and, I remember that. I and remember Paul that. was driving, and Audrey was in the passenger seat, and and I, and I had the distinct feeling, and I don't know this for a fact, I had the distinct feeling that they felt like they were going to drive through, kind of say hello to folks, and and that would be the 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 extent of their visit, and uh, 
they weren't able to do that because when people saw Paul and Audrey and Red One, they just kind of gradually but very clearly moved towards him. Everybody wanted to get up close. Everybody wanted to maybe shake his hand or just say hello or wish both of them well. And and the result is that they got in a, in a jam, traffic jam. They could not drive the car. The car had to stop because it was surrounded by people. It was an incredibly touching moment, and I, I've, I've sort of never forgotten about it. And uh, how much, I, I don't know if love is the right word, but I think it might be. Um, people felt towards, towards Paul and Audrey and how they, they, they you know, wanted to, uh, to pay their respects and say hello and um, – and, and the affection, result, the, the affection, so genuine. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was a, it was a, it was quite a moment for me. I, I, on one level, I wasn't surprised, but on another, I, I was, and I was certainly very touched. And uh, you know, they they finally got a chance to to kind of get the car moving again, and uh, and and drove off. And that was that was the last time I saw Paul um, in person, and uh, you know. It's a difficult day for the EAA community. Um, for those who are not really tuned into EAA, you may not. You, this may sound crazy, all, all of our talk, but but Paul was an important part of our life. Um, uh, of, you know, uh, certainly an uncle, if not a father figure, to many of us. Uh, he created a world that we just love and adore, and and uh, and and it's going to be sad for him not to be there in the future for him not to drive by in red one and uh but but boy he'll be remembered there's just no question he will be remembered for a long 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 time to come um it, it perhaps goes without saying but i won't let it go without saying that our heart goes out to audrey and all of paul's family um on this day um to uh to to uh uh, all of his children and uh, and to the extended family and to everybody in the EA community um, on this on this so sad loss. Any final words from you guys? Well, I keep sitting here grinning on the inside at what I'm sure would make him fuss about the fuss being made over him and divert credit to some of the people that the many people that helped along the way. Uh, but I also smile knowing that what he started lives on and will live on, and that's the legacy that I, I think is worth celebrating. Yeah. Right. yeah. We'll post this information on our website and in the forums and every place we can think of, but uh, the the Poberesny family have uh, communicated to all of us um, that they intend for there to be only a private family service for Paul. Um um, but they have asked that uh, memorials in honor of Paul's life and legacy uh, might be made to any of the following. And they have suggested uh, uh, memorials to the EAA Aviation Foundation, to the Evergreen Foundation, and to the American Cancer Society. And uh, we'll put specific contact information on the website. But uh, you know, if you're so inclined to remember Paul that way, those are three ways that you might do it. Again, our, our thoughts and prayers are with uh, Paul's family and uh, to the entire EAA community. And uh, with that, I guess we'll wrap up this kind of uh, unusual episode of Uncontrolled Airspace. Uh, we'll be back maybe in about a week or so uh, and uh, belatedly uh, celebrate our seventh birthday as a podcast. And until then, uh, David, uh, Jeb, thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk, talk to you both next time. Yep. So long.
Uh, All right. Well, what a crazy day, huh? Yeah. Well, hey, you knew uh, it was coming. You know, I mean, you knew it was coming. I mean, when I checked in and picked up my car last year, he was there in the uh, pits room. Mm -hmm. When I dropped the car off last year, he was there, and we shook hands and said so long. See you next year. And he said, well, you know, if uh, things work out, yeah, I'll see you next year. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Well, he, uh, he, he, saw him and looked at him and thought, amazing. Uh, he is just so determined, and here he is. Yeah. And figured, well, that's the last time I'm going to see him. Yeah. I, I had that same thought. I saw him once for sure, maybe twice on the grounds at this year's show. Uh, being driven in, in red one. And um, he looked frail. Uh, I think I said so in an earlier episode. Yeah. Um, that, But he was there, and he was waving to the crowds, and the crowds were waving back at him. And from, He must have posed and given thumbs up uh, to, you know, a thousand freaking photo pauses. It was, it was constant, I'm sure, from the time he left, um, I don't know, probably the PHP Center or something like that, to the time he got back to it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was everybody, you know, it was just constant. I don't know how many times he did that during this year's show. Um, they limited his time out there yeah, because yeah. it was just wearing him out. And he was, you know, just he was going to do it as long as he could get away with doing it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I got, you got to think, too, um, you know, get, get, you know, really metaphysical here. But, you know, coming off of this year's show. You know what a bummer it would have been if if he had passed during the show. Oh yeah, man, oh, man. but see, but but coming off of such a good show, yeah. I, you know, maybe now was the right time. Yeah. No, I think that's you know that's that that's something I thought about the last couple of hours. Uh, come to no conclusions one way or another about yeah. that stuff, but but it did occur to me that uh, he looked. At ease and happy at, at, at a level that I hadn't seen in a while. That's good. Uh, maybe that's just me projecting, but that's the way it sure played to my yeah. eye. I think there was a little bit of that. There's all sorts of those those handshake pictures, those thumbs-up pictures appearing on uh -huh. Facebook and Twitter right now. And uh, I was sitting here flashing back on some of the pictures in my brain from my early encounters with him. Uh one of them was I knew the significance of a P-38 Lightning, mm -hmm. my first trip to Oshkosh. Uh, and I'd met Paul on a couple of occasions before my first trip to Oshkosh and was stunned when I found it. It was him scrambling around on the top of the engine to sell, spinning the turbocharger exhaust wheels. Yeah. Uh, getting ready to fly the damn thing. Yeah. Because it was going to retire from flying and be put in a museum. And he was getting to do the last, getting to do, he ran the place. Yeah. He was going to do yeah. the last flight before it went in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He drew straws, right? Yeah. And, and he looked down and he, and, 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 and he said, you got to do this every time. Make sure that the turbocharger will work. Otherwise, one side doesn't make power worth a dime. Uh, he said, but listen to how quiet it is when it goes over. I'll see you later on. Boom. And off he jumps in the cockpit and off he goes. Uh, yeah, it was stunning. Just this whispering sound of the turbochargers that went by. No real exhaust note to it. 
jumped out of the cockpit at the end of the flight, and they're taxi, they're towing it in off the west ramp. And he's got this grin on his face and said, we're going to put it over a week's until we finish the museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, retired my butt. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. One, of the, one of the great stories that, I, I, uh, that one of the around the field people told me, um, this is a guy who was probably in his late 20s, early 30s when I talked to him. And he was telling me about an early, years and years earlier when he was a kid, you know, like a, a late teenager or something like that. And he was volunteering at one of the flying at one of the you know uh, Oshkosh fly-ins and he was working on some project and I forget exactly what it was it was a but it was it was at a particular location sort of out near the runway they were doing something that was taking some time and it wasn't a real fun job but it had to be done and so he and a couple other people were, were working away at this thing and a, and a vehicle comes by all right and it turns out Paul's in this it's like a jeep or maybe it's red one or whatever and then Paul's there and he stops by to chat with these volunteers and say hi how are you doing and and the guy I'm talking to he, he remembered that he what he said to Paul, kind of jokingly, he said, well, you know, I'm having a hard time getting motivated, you know. And Paul goes, oh, yeah, okay, sometimes, you know, that happens. And so they they finish up their conversation, and Paul drove off, all right. And about half an hour later, all right, these guys heard a P-51 in the air, all right. And they looked up, and it was Paul's P-51, all right. And it came by right over their heads, did this incredible <laughs> high-speed low pass, all right, like right over their heads. He buzzed them like two or three times, all right. And they were like thrilled. This was awesome, okay. <laughs> so then about like a half an hour after that, all right, they're, continu- they're still working on this project, all right, and the vehicle comes back by, and Paul's in it again, and he drives up to these guys and looks at them and says, so, you motivated now? <laughs> <laughs> grinning, grinning from ear to ear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 